from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join host Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Well, hey, hey, Alicia. It's nice to see you on this side of the pond. We were both obviously together in DC, so it's slightly strange in London being on uh, being on virtual as opposed to in person. And of course, I haven't congratulated you on the latest funding round. That's fantastic news. Do you want to share with our listeners if they've been living under a rock somewhere, the fantastic news on your side? Well, we just uh, announced it yesterday, so I, I don't think we're going to give them rock status at this point. Well, yesterday is a podcast, so <laughs> 27th of September. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, no, it was, uh, we, we announced, um, you know, that GIC has re-upped as, a, as an investor and then also High24, which is the largest hydrogen-only fund out there with a number of very relevant uh, LPs has um, come into our, our company as investors. And so obviously we're very excited about it um, because we have these very strong partners uh, to walk into any project or to, to, uh, to and investors that have an actual appetite for the CapEx so, and the ability <laughs> to fund some of the CapEx. So I think it's, it's, it turned out to be a great combination of investors and a great fit with ICE and we look forward to growing these projects and, and are feeling quite a bit more de-risked with this uh, investment round, but also um, uh, just with these particular investors. It's, uh, they both offer sort of an ecosystem each, whether it's their portfolio companies or their LPs, and that's really helpful. No, I mean, it's fantastic news. And um it's been quite a busy period for High24 because they didn't just announce the deal with you guys. They also announced the deal with Elise, which French e-fuel developer led by Pascal Penacourt, who's an old friend of Proteum's, used to be on our board. So delighted for them as well. That's a great result. And of course, the probably the biggest flagship deal of the year, which is the H2 Green Steering deal which is uh, you know, enormous deal, 1.5 billion of capital committed. So certainly a busy time for High24 and also quite a busy time with your climate week and the build-up to COP. Are there any takeaways you have from that, Alicia, to share with our listeners? I would say that New York Climate Week is even more chaotic and even less organized than any COP anyone has ever been to. Um, <laughs> we, I, I had to go anyway um, because... I'm on this McKinsey uh, Sustainability Advisory Board, so we had meetings the week before. But all of the different events, uh, you know, while you were there and I were there um, last week, uh, Monday through Wednesday for me, I think you stayed a bit longer. They were quite hard to get to because, you know, New York is very spread out. It takes a long time to get from one place to another. But yet the events were scheduled, like, you know, not even one minute between them. Somehow you're supposed to magically appear across town. So that that was difficult, I think. 
uh, a lot of meetings ended up being late and or people just couldn't go because they had to be able to have time to get there um so it was uh it was a bit more difficult i think cup will be a lot easier because it's at the expo center so everything will be in one place and you can take a high-speed train to get there and you have to worry so much about if you're going to be able to catch an uber at $180 to go for five minutes. Uh, some of the pricing was insane. But, it, uh, you know, it was great to see a lot of the, the same people who um, are have been involved all along. And then, obviously, the number of American businesses or um, projects are increasing all the time because of IRA. So you just see a lot more interest, um, and especially most people can make it to New York. So that is, uh, it's just a lot more people than before, which is, which is good, but just uh, difficult uh, in terms of the logistics. Yeah, I just wanted to share, if I could, a little bit of a take on New York Climate Week, because I mean, I think you're a conference veteran, Alicia, you're, you know, you're part of the great and the good that gets to go to all these fantastic events. So for me, this is sort of the first time at Climate Week. So I guess, granted chaotic, but I don't have the COP comparison. I, I think what was striking was, and I know the cliche is that this is very American, but it was very optimistic, or it felt very upbeat. And I think that is a really nice and refreshing change from where I think in the UK at the moment, the momentum around everything energy transition is just shocking. It's just very, very negative. And I think even in Europe, it's quite negative. So whether it was as at the Earthshot Prize um, launch event with Bloomberg Philanthropies, and again, the kind of technologies coming through that and the excitement about that and how people engage, which is really like, was actually very motivational and upbeat, or whether as at the Barclays Rise event, and you had people like the DOE chief loan officer talking about how they have a 400 billion private credit facility to go out and support projects. And you're going, my God, this is what real support, real like driving the sector, driving innovation, driving deployment energy transition looks like. I just thought that was quite a stark difference. And taking aside the chaos of New York, by the way, I also think COP will be chaotic too for different reasons. But Take aside the travel chaos, just actually being an environment with a lot of very positive energy where a lot of people are actually putting serious money to work and seeing people saying, why are we excited? Why are we looking at this? Why are we looking at that? And then just moving away from, I think, a very conservative, very negative outlook, especially from investors and, and to some extent from policymakers in Europe towards a really positive, let's go. How do we get the barriers out of the way and move faster? was really interesting just to show the contrast across the pond as we call it I, I definitely agree with you and, and all of that is is really driven from the top which is when the worries come in so we, we have biden now who has had the biggest environmental bill passed using his uh his, his very well-known ability to talk across the aisle and to get uh, people to get together and actually sign on to something so it's very optimistic and it's a fantastic time right now but the worry is, of course, what happens at the next election and what happens if someone else becomes president. And uh, the, I think what's, what's good, what, what helps a bit, is that most of these projects are actually being built in red states. So um, that means that uh, it's less likely that you'll have politicians trying to take jobs away from people. <laughs> it, it, you know, um, so I, I think uh, that's one smart thing that has happened, or by coincidence, it has happened um, that should hopefully um, maintain this status quo of of this uh, of IRA, and there won't be any type of um, shutdown of various types of capital or 
having really um, difficult um, sort of hurdles to meet that no one can. So that allows the government to just not put the money out. So it's, uh, you know, there are a number of worries I think we have about the U.S. I mean, I think Europeans are really hard on themselves. But the one thing that we feel is that they're not ever going to turn their back on the environment. We hope. I mean, and that's and therein is what we'll see. But it's it was interesting talking to our guests today, and maybe we should kind of cover that off because obviously, you know, this is a developer that's building all over the world. You know, whether it's Paraguay or Costa Rica or even Iceland, which which really are leaders in sustainability and clean energy. So, do you want to introduce our fantastic guest for this year? Absolutely, our dear friend, both of us, Olivier Moussot. Uh, he is the CEO of Atom a London-based green hydrogen and ammonia production company with projects in Paraguay and Iceland, and I believe something in, in Costa Rica. He uh, started his career as a field engineer in the power and water sector with GE Electrochem. He followed that by a move to oil and gas with energy engineering company Schlumberger across EMEA regions. He then shifted to uh, Standard Chartered Bank, where he ended up co-head of oil and gas project finance, before joining IFC, the private sector investment arm of the World Bank, which is where I think he met you. Um, he, he spent nine years as chief investment officer of global energy. And during his time funding and managing energy infrastructure assets in oil and gas, power and renewables, he has led over 500 million of equity investments in early stage companies and over 300 billion of corporate and structured debt finance transactions across emerging markets and Europe. So, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, we should just jump into it and let our, our listeners hear it straight from him. Olivier, how are you doing? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, Alicia. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Um, everything about hydrogen has been looking forward to this for a while, especially since Chris and I know you well. I think what would be great for our listeners is to get to know you a little better as well, um, just to understand what you do, what you're focused on, and your background and sort of the trajectory that got you here. Absolutely. So I, I guess I, I, I will um, qualify myself as a, let's call it an energy geek. Right? It's what I'm passionate about uh, in all of its forms, whether it's electrons or molecules. From a career perspective, I started as an engineer, uh, commissioning power plants when it was all, you know, peaking gas was all the rage in the UK. Then I, you know, moved to oil and gas, actually, with uh, Schlumberger, which is an oil service company, and worked across Middle East uh, and Africa and a bit of Europe. And once I knew, you know, how to turn the spanners um, and understand, you know, how, you know, some of the engineering side of the energy world worked, I was really curious about the financing side and which is how do you finance these giga projects? And, you know, through luck, design um, ended up with Standard Chartered Bank, um, which is one of the largest emerging markets bank uh, globally. And at the same time, um, you know, they were act aggressively growing their oil and gas desk. Uh, so I was very fortunate to be part of, you know, pretty large landmark transactions and a lot of it around gas, actually a lot around, around LNG. And I ended up being co-head of the oil and gas team. Um, and I had worked on a couple of transactions with IFC, uh, so the International Finance Corporation, which is the private investment arm of the World Bank. And, you know, I really like what they were doing. I really like the mission of what they were trying to do. And uh, from a curiosity point of view, I had done a number of financing, but I was really curious about the equity side of the business of in the energy. 
and you know IFC as we like to joke you've got over 60 years of experience and mistakes in a way uh, and some incredible success so where better place to learn than joining IFC I thought I would stay four years I ended up staying nine years and and within IFC we had this really interesting point and inflection point where we were doing obviously a lot of hydrocarbon a lot of you know basic energy but also a lot more renewable and 2017 we realized that we need to really focus a lot on the renewable side, both on the electrons and the molecules, and um, and ended up, you know, being part of a global energy team as, as CIO. Um, and actually, it is during my time at IFC that um, my uh, path crossed uh, Chris's path, and I remember very much, you know, as we were looking at battery storage, as we were looking at hydrogen, you know, having this, let's call it, to say politely, oh shit moment where Chris and I were in the same meeting where a very large utility was looking at a hydrogen project in Latin America. And you realize that we had a lot of funding capacity within the World Bank environment and the IFC, but even some of the largest corporations in the world were not really ready to go in full in. It was really tiptoeing. And these are people with almost infinite balance sheet, right? tiptoeing into it and expecting basically public money to do the work for them, which basically accelerated my thinking and uh, saying that, well, you know, if I'm going to do a hydrogen seriously, maybe I need to be on the other side and develop projects which are very obviously developmental, but also, uh, let's call it, which will fit within the uh, financing environment that these large institutions have uh, on the financing side. And in order to accelerate things, because you couldn't count on the very large firms to do let's call it, you know, the, the VC around hydrogen. So that's the short version. No, it's a pretty good uh, short version of that, Olivier. And as you say, it was interesting kind of having all that shared World Bank experience, uh, well, IFC experience, which is a slightly different creature. I know the branding still says World Bank Group, but actually sort of underneath the tin is quite different. Yeah, so I guess the obvious question really coming from all of that is that, um, you know, when you're in Washington, D.C., you're in an ivory tower, you can see everything that's going on in the world, you have access to all these interesting businesses, all these government decision makers, and to some extent, you have this incredible ability to go wherever you want afterwards, and to sort of, and to some extent to do whatever you want afterwards. Um, as my dad put it, the World Bank and the IFC are fantastic calling cards to, to the next job wherever you may go. So why did you decide, given all of that explosion experience, to set up Atomi? What was it that made you think that is the next step that I want to take? Uh, so, I mean, you, you are correct, right? I went from a $7 billion energy balance sheet across debt and equity to a real startup environment. So I think the, the, the why was really the fact that we would see a number of projects on our table as, as IFC and an incredibly high proportion of these projects were some of them, you know, good ideas, badly cooked, excellent idea, poor management, good management, bad ideas. So, so you would see that we would be really ready to put money at work, but the amount of good projects was really lacking, right? On one hand, on on the other side, we also looked at increasingly, you know, big private equity was going in and pushing, you know, basically, you know, very strong management team with uh, with with good ideas, but they were always, you know, let's say let's say you're missing bit, right? Um, so that was, I guess, on the project side, that was one bit. Then on the um, let's say macro side as we were uh, maturing the whole hydrogen thesis and as you say that was the advantage of the ifc is you have at the tip of your finger of some of the world's best economists across sectors the realization was if we want you know hydrogen and green hydrogen to be successful what do we need right you need obviously very cheap power 
um, and you need a market. And it was all about doing that analysis, going to a further detail about, okay, how do we reduce the amount of risk associated to projects? So ideally, you take existing power, reduce the technology risk. So if you have baseload power, you can stick to alkaline electrolyzers, which obviously that's been operating for a while. And obviously, if you have all of that power and a good grid, that means that you don't have to invest on that side. So it further reduces the cost of the production of hydrogen. So you have a number of countries in the world where you have excess hydropower or very large amount of hydropower. So, you know, Nepal, Bhutan, Cambodia, Laos. And if you look on the Latin American side, obviously it's Paraguay, number one, it's the world's largest exporter of hydro. You've got Brazil, you've got Colombia, you've got Costa Rica. So you have a few of these countries. So let's sort, that's the supply side sorted. And then you look on the demand side, and it was, okay, well, with hydrogen, what do you do with hydrogen? Do you go on mobility? Do you do something else? Well, the reality is hydrogen today, it's mostly industrial chemical. And okay, what? Hydrogen mostly used today, you know, in an ammonia environment, in a refinery environment. And you say, okay, well, I have ammonia, which is one of the second largest um, industrial commodity available. And you say, well, actually, 80% of ammonia is agri. So, okay, you know, where do you have the most demand for agri? product for fertilizers. And you say, well, actually, Latin America, Mercosur, is the world's largest importer of fertilizers. So if you have a supply and the demand in the same place, that kind of works. And as I was, you know, with a team, right, maturing this idea and talking to people we had worked with before, and our chairman of Atom Peter is one of those, um, I was really thinking I was maturing the idea for IFC's business in a way. And that was obviously during the pandemic where a number of us had time, you know, extra time to think. What happened is that at one point, Peter just say, listen, you know, it's it, it's a good idea, but I don't have anybody to run it. Would you put your money where your mouth is? So I think, you know, that my chairman dropped the gauntlet and say, will you pick it up uh, and leverage that 20 year plus experience across electrons and molecules and help build up at home? So, yeah, it's uh, I think it's a slow maturation process. You know, I'm not I'm not the quickest thinker, but uh, eventually I get there. And so this is how, and then I guess we now we are in the how, right? So why um, why ammonia for fertilizer, and and who else is doing this today? Uh, so you know clearly ammonia. Now we are seeing the economy around ammonia growing extremely fast, right? You've got obviously ammonia to transport hydrogen over long distances because hydrogen has limitations. You've got ammonia for the power sector. That's what Japan is pushing for. You've got ammonia into shipping, which, you know, obviously you, Alicia, is leading that stream very aggressively. Um, and and these are all absolute needs, things that need to happen. But our view is kind of, let's call it a, a bit of a boring view, which is you've got an industry, you've got about 180 million tons of ammonia per year, right? And 82-ish percent of that ammonia is used into the fertilizer sector. So you have an existing sector, which is available at your fingertip and whether the ammonia is gray or green makes absolutely no difference and that is used to make fertilizer and you realize that actually the fertilizer market is 200 billion dollars a year and growing right i mean the reality is we have a population growing by a billion people every 12 years so the need for fertilizer is only going into one direction the other side is from a carbon perspective fertilizer and the agri sector is more emissions than shipping and aviation combined so clearly again a bigger market and a market that is really for today. So that's one side. Let's call it the market side, the market that exists today rather than the market of tomorrow and being on the edge of that. And I think the, um, you know, clearly for us, the other side was also a very simple logistics point of view, which is actually, you know, honestly, moving bags of fertilizers is a lot cheaper than moving ammonia. So from a competitiveness point of view, if you can produce fertilizer in places which consume them, 
you are mechanically more competitive than things which are imported. So we really saw that, that it was a way to increase, let's call it the IRR, the projects rather than ammonia. And also the final point, and this is also a very important point, it's you can do smaller facilities, like you can do fertilizer without going into gigascale projects. And whilst, you know, what, you know, what, you guys are developing uh, on the giga scale, you know, absolutely needs to happen, but we saw an opportunity to go a little bit shorter. Um, the last point, which was came as a surprise, and it wasn't part of our original thesis, um, is, you know, some of you um, will have noticed that the in CBAM, so the EU's carbon borders mechanisms, have now put fertilizer in the regulation. So from 2026, imports of fertilizers from Saudi, Russia, you name it, will be carbon taxed. So that's a nice little upside to see that, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, make a case for us maybe to export fertilizer all the way to Europe. But it's really the fact that, you know, we see in a large part that the hydrogen economy is, you know, will have more success if it's localized, if it's, and you treat it the same way that we treat decentralized energy. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear you talk through that. And I mean, one thing that jumps out to me is that I think, you know, on one side of the ammonia market, you have, as you point out, these gigascale projects of which, you know, uh, ICE and Alicia have, have led the market in these gigawatt scale projects and there are now others but they, they sort of led the market there but you do also have this kind of cohort of projects or project developers that are building kind of these 50 to kind of 200 megawatt scale projects right and you know we've seen Hytogen, for example, in Europe, who originally, I think, was High24's first deal, 200 million to do projects in Europe and in Canada. There was um, uh, Aeneas Energy, an ammonia player in the UK that's now moved into the US, backed by Carlisle. So, you know, there were quite a few people playing in that sort of space. Why kind of, uh, I guess, looking at that, did you go, this This is the segment of the markets to focus on? And, and who else do you see as your near-term competitors? Do you see those types of players, new companies as your real competitors? Or actually, are you more looking at the Yaras and the CF fertilizers of this world as potentially competitors? So yeah, I think competitors, we've been quite, you know, I think pleasantly surprised to see that uh, we may have been right a little bit earlier, or maybe have matured a little bit earlier than most because we started earlier than most, right? We we didn't want to be one of these other companies which assigns MOUs and then flags an MOU, right? Um, I think at one point we were told we were the first one in all of Latin America to actually spend real money onto a feed, right? We are we were way past, let's call it feasibility studies for free, um, where somebody else carries you, right? We actually put our money where my, my, my mouth is. If you look at now, you've got, I think in June, it was announced a new company called Fertig High, um, which is a JV of Heineken, Invivo, Siemens, and a couple of others really focused on that green side of fertilizer. Um, there was one also which was recently created, um, which is looking at project in the US and Latin America, which was backed by, I think, 380 million maybe from Macquarie. So I think there's a move that understanding that, hey, listen, there's a real market today. And that particular market was extremely disrupted by the war in Ukraine, right? I think one thing that we obviously always forget is that fertilizers, most of them come from natural gas and coal. Um, I mean, a good portion of them. And Russia, Ukraine, Belarus is responsible for nearly 30% of the world's supply of fertilizer. So there was clearly a very high disconnect into a, let's say, a supply chain of fertilizer, which has created a lot of issue, right? And whilst we have put hydrogen into the bucket of energy security, actually hydrogen is also in the bucket of food security. And, you know, as we like to say, 
you know, okay, if you have an energy crisis, you'll have a change in government, right? Shit happens, to say it politely. Um, if you have a food crisis, you have you have a goddamn revolution, right? I mean, look at what's happening in the Sahel today. A lot of it has to do with food. So, you know, from a developmental impact point of view, I think the sector of agri is fascinating. Um, and a number of players are trying to adapt. Um, and you say, now, is Yaha a competitor? I mean, Yaha is a client or could be a client, would be a client. These are companies which typically haven't really taken, let's say, CapEx projects at heart, right? If you look at, you know, CF Industries is now working away from the UK. They have been looking at a couple of projects in uh, in the US, IRA-backed, but they are very uncomfortable spending their own CapEx. So they may not be as, let's say, project developers, as we have seen in the uh, energy side, but they will certainly be the one that once you have things in operation, they will come in and, and swoop in. So... It, it's a very interesting market, which has a lot of similarities with the oil and gas market, but they are extremely discreet. Like, you know, I mean, name the number of companies in the agri and fertilizer sector, which are publicly traded. You won't find a lot of them. You know, they revel into the trading game of staying under the radar. But obviously now the carbon element is coming through and that's forcing them to adapt a little bit. So it, it's a long-winded answer to say that it's it, it's a very complex environment. Um, with players which are being forced to think very differently. Um, and it's kind of fun, I have to admit, to disrupt that market. You mentioned earlier that uh, the EU is going to have a CBAM, basically, on uh, on fertilizer. But only maybe four years ago, they wanted to have organic fertilizer only. Because fertilizer, as you know, um, often produces pollution and groundwater from all the non-point uh, agricultural runoff. And in most cases, people use more fertilizer than they should because they would like to maximize their yield for that particular year. And that has resulted in a lack of topsoil worldwide. Um, It is a real problem that we no longer use some of these older methods of farming and we don't let land lay fallow. And there's been a big movement with regenerative farming. And I'm just curious what, how you look at that, because there's new technologies coming that aren't ammonia uh, that are supposed to have fewer um, pollutive uh, aspects. And also Europe could potentially get back to its original opinion, which was that it would be um, organic fertilizers and not chemical fertilizers. So I'm curious, you're kind of in the incumbent position, even though it's a a startup to some extent. Um, But what do you see coming down the line that might actually push you into a different market because uh, of all the new developments? It's it's a super important point. And actually, if you look at uh, what the UN has been doing, they have really focused on the organic farming side of things. But now, actually, they are looking at the green nitrate side because up until now, it didn't really exist as far as the supply. So it was never a question. The one thing that, um, and I, and we have that on our website, I think we have a, you know, a 17 minute video of our, on, on the website to give a sense of the wider agri sector. And, and from a population growth perspective, there's one graph on this, which is quite telling. It shows, you know, the amount of, population that organic fertilizers is feeding versus the amount of population that let's call them chemical-based fertilizers are feeding. And it is the single most incredible thing to look at in a way to see how the exact correlation between population growth and nitrate fertilizer supply. Um, And so the reality is we cannot avoid 
nitrate-based fertilizer? Can we go into more complex, what we call the NPKs, for example, where you can have more efficiency into your nitrate to lower the need for nitrate in a way? It's one of those things which is being worked on. Um, but I think the other side is clearly as an industry, they are now only realizing what they need to do, right? It was always a battle, as you exactly pointed out, where is nitrate better you know, than the organic? Right? Actually, the problem is they have complete different uses and they have completely different environment. And, and you would have seen from the politician's point of view um, what happened in Holland, right? I mean, there was a very, let's say, top-down approach on the farmers, which led to a proper change of government to everybody's surprise. I personally come from Normandy. I can tell you, you know, nitrates runoff is not a great thing. So they need to be managed, right? Uh, obviously, our nitrates runoff tends to come from, you know, um, pigs and cows, but that's still the same. It's still nitrates. You really see that, you know, we have this massive amount um, of challenges on the nitrate side because we have to use them better, but we cannot live without them. And they produce 2.6 gigaton per year of carbon, right? So you have indeed two different challenges. You've got the topsoil, the soil challenges, um, the ability to drink water, right? Let's be honest. And the other side, the wider carbon challenge. So I think, the, unfortunately, in a way, I will go back to a very Obama phrase, right? Which is, you know, which, which type of energy is best? Well, actually, it's all of the above. They just have to be managed properly. Which type of fertilizer is best? Well, it's all of the above. Again, they need to be managed properly. And the last point I will make is actually the head of the International Fertilizer Association is, is a lady called Alsbeta Klein. And Alsbeta used to be the head of climate for the IFC. So it gives you a sense of what the industry as a whole is thinking of. And they are playing catch up with the energy side. No, and it's super interesting kind of getting into this. And, and I think that observation around sort of um, it's not just energy security that you're sort of talking about as food security is also quite interesting. I mean, I, I think that actually leads to one of the most interesting things about your story is that Otomi listed and, and that is slightly unusual, right? In the sense that, you know, don't get me wrong, there are a number of hydrogen companies that have listed, but many of those businesses that listed kind of listed relatively later in their development cycle, they'd already raised quite a bit of capital. Um, and you've certainly seen technology companies list early. You know, if you go and speak to Sarah's Power or ITM, you know, they, they listed a long time ago and actually would say listing was really important for their survival um, because it gave people a chance to come in. Conversely, developers like Waste2Tricity in the UK and others that listed, I think, had a really torrid time of it, frankly, and it didn't play out so well. So the two link questions I have, um, which are quite topical, I think, are one, why did you choose to list? And secondly, why on earth in the UK? Um, because, you know, I think that is equally live question right now with everyone saying, you know, you know, the UK, is this really the market for what you're trying to do? I think we find both questions, both answers really interesting. It's, it's, it's a complete fair, it's an absolute right question, right? So the, I think one, one side of the coin is, you know, my chairman and larger shareholder is, has a long experience in, in lead, you know, basically listing companies and, and having created companies and exited them, right? So, and quite successfully uh, for a number of them. So we already had, let's call it the in-house expertise on how to deal with a, with a UK listing. Um, but the actual, the way we see a listing and, as, and you know, I think the clue is, is, is a little bit in the name of Atom. It's everything we try to do is to be an accelerator. And we see that the advantage of being listed is we may be, you know, a, a small team, um, you know, and at the end, you know, there's less than 20 of us. Um, but when you are going into any new geography, it's, it's really a badge of credibility. 
which is, you know, it's not Olivier and friends backed by Macquarie, right? Where you have to say, well, is it an IOU? You know, how real is it? You know, are you guys going to basically bait and switch? Um, where if you are, let's say, the head of a utility and you're negotiating a PPA, we may not be the biggest company in the world, but we have very strong shareholders and we are extremely transparent, right? So that's one of the aspects. The other aspect is also, you know, dealing with suppliers, right? And I think if you talk to any electrolyzer manufacturer, you know, they get an email every other day from a new management team who wants a supply of electrolyzers, right? So you know, I think, you know, when Baker Hughes became an investor back in May, I think that was one of the first thing that they say, and then the way we negotiated our terms with Baker Hughes was also that it was reflected of the fact that we were listed and we had, let's say, liquid shares so that they could exit if they were unhappy with the relationship. So again, it's a credibility thing. Is it the best way to get money? Of course not, right? Let's be honest. Like the, it's a very... It's a shallow puddle of capital out there today, right? Let's be honest. But for us, it's it's worth the pain. And the final point, as I say, like I was an equity investor, you know, investing into management teams. And if you want to have some leverage with some of these large equity houses, the fact that you can say, I am not stuck to only one option, you know, I can actually go back to the market if I really don't like the valuation, that optionality is also very useful. So, you know, is listing in the UK the, the best thing? It depends for which stage, stage of the business you are in. I think for us, it's the best way to go in and to go, to enable to go from a developer to an operator, to a portfolio, all within the same company, rather than being, let's say, some of the renewable development companies who cannot stay developers, right? And what they want to do is churn, churn, churn assets. We have an ambition to become a little bit bigger than that. Um, but also, you know, it's, timing is everything with the markets, right? We took the absolute last window of December 30th, 2021. And and full credit to my chairman, like he was ruthless with our brokers. And he say, we are list- there's a window open. It's a tiny window, but, you know, we took it. Um, so it has disadvantages, right? It's, you know, it's more reporting requirements, you name it. But again, it enables us to accelerate our business and look at new opportunities. And, you know, Costa Rica came because we were listed. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Now that you mentioned Costa Rica, actually, it would be great to hear a little bit about your projects, maybe in Paraguay and Iceland, Um, just uh, have a better understanding of sort of the size, the timing, um, you know, what particular thing you're doing in those markets. Yeah, so I think. The ETA is now 145 megawatt PPA, but we are sizing the project at 120 megawatt. Uh, the reason for the size is really on, let's call it on the tech side, right? I mean, as, as, as everybody knows in this call, like the largest uh, operation, uh, electrolyzers in operation is just what, just a little bit of what, 260 megawatt, 240 megawatt. I forget the number now, but that's just, you know, for the past six months, right? Up until a year ago, you know, you didn't have triple digit megawatt electrolyzers, right? So, for us to be, to be able to do to go very fast and to deliver projects over the next two to three years, you have to stay you know in the low in the low hundreds, right? So that was one thing. Um, the other side, the size of the market, you know, yes, Mercosur, so Argentina, sorry, Paraguay, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, is a 30 million plus ton fertilizer market per year. So you know we will cater to less than one percent of that. Um, uh, but we have to take into account the fact that from Ande, right, this very large utility which manages, you know, gigawatts of power, um, even at 145 megawatt, we we are the largest industrial um, 
consumer that they have ever had. So when you do, when you design these projects, you have to always put into into your mind that yes, we absolutely have the advantage of not being in the UK, where we don't have to wait ten years from a national grid to ask for a connection. You know, we can basically go in into a grid which has a lot of extra capacity today. But historically, these utilities have never had you know high intense high electricity intensity consumers right so for a team whose principal operations has been to deal with basically you know individual uh, customers or small scale users you have to have a little bit of an education and don't come at them and saying i want a gigawatt right culturally it just will not fit it will be too high on their risk profile so you start with something reasonable and then you scale that up right so we spent about a year in electromechanical studies um, it started with 60 megawatts, then it became 120, then 145, and now we are in, and so that now we have a long-term PPA there, and we're already in pre-PPA discussion for next allocation of 300 megawatts because the country has just um, commissioned a one gigawatt substation, so we already have a slug reserve from there. Uh, so we always went, you know, very slowly, steady, you know, getting people comfortable. Um, and so the project uh, of Vieta is uh, it's now, well, we are finishing front-end engineering and design. Everything we do has an RFP, an RFQ, you name it. So we ended up uh, as on the feed side with uh, Urbas and Casale. Uh, and Casale is the world's largest uh, licensor of ammonia. I think the Casale kit is in about 300 uh, fertilizer plants globally. And, and they are one of the few who can actually deal with facilities under a million ton of fertilizers per year. You know, we, we've, you know, KBR was part of a process and uh, as was Fleur. And I really, really love the KBR team. You know, they're excellent people. Uh, but let's be honest, you know, they are fully focused on a million ton plus in the US, in the IRA. Um, and, and you have to have people who are fit for purpose and who can do stuff of your size. Um, the, and on the financing side, you know, I'm just coming from the IFC. I do everything on IFC performance standards, which is more painful. Um, and I think I, I remember an interview, um, that you made, uh, Alicia with, uh, some of your colleagues in Oman and talking about the ENS point of view. And it's exactly the way we've done it, right? We've said very early on, you have to be aligned with the country. You have to do the right ESIA. Um, and because we've done things right from early on, just a few weeks ago, we got our environmental license, which allows us to start construction and operations. If we had put that to the last minute, I mean, you know, good luck, right? Um, and we are working with the Inter-American Development Bank, so the World Bank equivalent for LATAM and Netexis. Um, and now we are basically, we launched the financing process for Vieta, right? The idea is to finance it on an SPV basis, right? So TOPCO. The PLC, the listed entity, is really there. Let's call it the business developer. But the whole idea is to have projects like Vieta, which will be financed at the asset level with equity in the asset, debt in the asset. And so, you know, now we are slowly but surely getting, you know, we've, we've built the base, we've built the middle. Now we're getting to the top end. It's becoming more exciting. Um, but um, yeah, so that's project one, project two, the 300 megawatt. Um, Costa Rica is slowly maturing, but what we are, want to do now is we have this engineering uh, of a fully functional fertilizer, green fertilizer plant is, is to try to then copy-paste that engineering because this is 18 months of work. And if we can copy-paste it in different places, um, that, would be, uh, you know, that would be the best way to accelerate.
Well, look, I mean, really appreciate you going through all of that, Olivier. I mean, I think it's, it is a hugely exciting time. Um, I think many of our listeners, or at least uh, some of our listeners, will be aware that there's a lot of broker notes out about Atomi at the moment, saying just how important this moment is for you. And uh, I think if I was reading the uh, Liberum one that I saw the other day, they were saying this is the key inflection point for Atomi, was the line that I was reading in the update. So, you know, the moment of truth, um, which, as we all know, is bloody hard work, but a lot of fun. Um, as well and uh, the prize is fantastic and by the sounds of things it would be one of the first at scale green ammonia projects in this ecosystem which is also not easy so fantastic result and you know all of our fingers and toes are crossed for you for uh, a fantastic outcome on that one I think you know we just want to say on behalf of the team from everything about hydrogen thank you very much for coming on the show it's been fantastic to hear you and get your perspectives before we sign off do you have any final uh, comments or things that we missed that you wanted to share with our listeners so I I think the the thing to share is you know we really took an infrastructure point of view right it's like how do you minimize risks all around the chain minimize electrolyzer risk take alkaline to have alkaline you need hydro you know um, infrastructure risk you know build near port where you already have existing facilities so really think about your entire ecosystem and and just hack away at risks and make sure that you only take the risks that you can control right and unfortunately many many projects we've seen you know you um, you know alicia uh, as well it's like people take on too many things and then, you know, it's it, it becomes impossible to manage. So I think from our point of view is is really that. And if, if, if there's one thing I would leave to people is in, investors are ready to take risks. Right? They really are, but they have to be manageable, identified risk, and they want to get confidence that you have looked at this risk and you have already thought about how to mitigate them. And uh, the other side is let's remember, and I think we, and I keep forgetting it. And I think honestly, you know, as you say, well, why did you list? One of the biggest lesson um, from listing is the realization that we we often get too comfortable speaking to people who understand what we do, who are experts. and, And we have to make the effort to come back down to the 101, right? We are at the tip end uh, of a spear as far as this decarbonization world. And we, you know, it can very easily become an echo chamber. So always, you know, educate, educate. And, and I, we say, you know, repetition is education and we repeat a lot. And, uh, and I think it's something that it's all of our, it's our duty, all of us, you know, whether you're an electrolyzer manufacturer, uh, a developer, and even on the fertilizer side, we have to educate on what we are doing and make people understand that this is real. It's a real market. There's a real use today. And, you know, don't sit on your hands like, you know, and, and I challenge sometimes some of the funds, right? They say, oh, we are very proud of doing, you know, this much of solar and this much of wind. I'm just like, there is, listen, guys, this is not impactful anymore, right? Another solar project is a utility project, you know, like, like oh, where can you push the envelope? So pushing the envelope is indeed, is like, you know, uh, marine fuels, right? It's agri, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's looking on the power side. So I think that's really where I want to go. It's just like we have to continue to evangelize and we don't get comfortable. Perfect. What a great way to wrap up. Well, thank you very much, Olivier. No, thank you very much, Alicia and Chris. So, Chris, what, what did you think of our guest? Uh, it was uh, great to hear um, straight from the horse's mouth what Olivia's been up to. Yeah, it was it was fantastic to have Olivia on. I mean, it was a uh, 
it was actually quite a broad range of topics. I mean, you know, going all the way from how do you try and get projects up and running, you know, through to the project development philosophy they have, talking about sort of food security and energy security, how do you scale up the project sizes, you know, even into the types of, uh, you know, why do you list versus why don't you list, um, and then the benefits of that and the challenges when engaging with the supply chain. So it was really quite holistic. I think we even went into a topic about nitrates and impacts of ammonia as a maybe the right or not right fertilizer solution long term. So it was very, very broad. I think there were a couple of comments that stood out for me that were very interesting. I, I think one that stood out that was very interesting was people spending real money. I think he's absolutely right on that. And I think the fact that they have gone into feed and the fact that they have, you know, because they're listed, you can see publicly what they've spent and what they've done and what they've committed to. It is quite an interesting dynamic because at the moment there is always this thing of, well, are you just talking the talk or are you putting your money where your mouth is? And I think, as he said, moving from this enormous position where at the IFC where he had this huge exposure and portfolio and ability and stepping into a startup role is also another way of putting your money where your mouth is. So I thought all of that was very impressive and I respect it a lot. Um, I also thought, you know, talking about this idea that actually this is a massive ammonia import market that has an abundance of local renewables and that actually potentially could even benefit longer term from things like the CBAM that will create other dynamics. I thought those were all very good conversation topics. And I think we've spoken, I remember at the World Bank many times about Costa Rica and markets like that and said hydrogen actually makes a lot of sense for them here because they're big importers of gas and diesel and coal and various other forms of fossils, but they have fantastic domestic renewables. So how do you make the most of that? How do you capture that? Um, and I think you know, this is a very good way of doing that. And then again, the way he supposed challenges was good. You know, the fact that EPCs like KBR, he's like, they're very, very good, but they're not used to building projects at the scale. So you need to find people that are appropriate for scale. I thought was interesting. I would have liked to push him on. Do you think some of these players, some of these suppliers and some of these EPC partners are maybe making a mistake? by not doing these types of projects. They're not learning. They're not building the track record on these things and then stepping up. I think if I'd had more time, I'd have liked to push him there. Um, equally, you know, the technology choice was kind of interesting. You know, uh, alkaline being more reliable, atmospheric alkaline, absolutely. Pressurized alkaline, however, is still relatively new. So maybe it would have been interesting to push on that and say, is that because you've looked at ammonia and that's why you said, well, atmospheric uh, hydrogen's fine um, as opposed to if you'd gone for something else where pressurized was important you know e-fuel production for example if you're producing SAF or methanol pressurized hydrogen is important then maybe you would have taken a different view so you know aspects where like all these conversations if you'd have more time I would have pushed but um, still very very interesting what did you think Alicia I mean you know you're an ammonia you're the ammonia maestro in many ways green ammonia maestro uh, different scale of projects but um, how did you what was your take on all of the conversation well, I, I thought that uh, it was interesting. Um, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, when you can produce the ammonia and use it in the same place, obviously. Um, that doesn't cover uh, most of the world, but there are different uh, places. So that type of bespoke uh, facility is is a perfect fit. But unfortunately, most of the ammonia made right now is made using um, the SMR and using natural gas, or I don't even want to call it that, methane. And uh, they have, um, it, I think it's more likely that they will add carbon capture to their process since it's captive, and they will make blue 
ammonia. I think that that would happen faster and at a larger scale than it is to make green ammonia. And that's just because people don't just make hydrogen. They typically make hydrogen to make ammonia. Um, so it's all in one captured chain. And I think people don't realize that. Like they, they think that these are being sold separately when hydrogen is barely traded at all. Um, it's, it's generally captive. So I do think you're going to see a number of these players um, using carbon capture to try to uh, get into the market with uh, a low emissions uh, intensity. Um, and then, uh, and so there will be a competition. Uh, having said that, I, I think that there's just not enough is the biggest problem. Like there's just not enough hydrogen. There's just not enough ammonia. So I think the competition question is, is not really that relevant. It becomes relevant when we talk about things like um, inputs. So um, it becomes really relevant if you are in shipping or aviation and you want to make e-kerosene or methanol and you're fighting over the biogenic CO2. That is really relevant. But I think in his case, you know, he's making a green product and uh, there's no one else. They're importing it right now. So, I mean, it's just a very logical setup and um, very doable. And, and I think it's great for the whole market to have, even even though we have large projects, it's, it's still great to have the smaller projects, um, you know, building. And um, and eventually those will be larger and larger as well. I mean, I, I'm definitely in the and not or category for most of these things. Um, it really depends on the market and the needs and you know the quality of the resource. You know, it, it's I don't think every country can be an exporter because they don't all have great resource. But um, but there is a lot of opportunity for a lot of different countries and and I'm. Except for Iceland, I suppose. I, um, I'm a big fan of, of his work in the Global South, that he's working in Paraguay and in Costa Rica. And I, I think there's a lot of Latin America that's very interested in working in this space. I mean, the former uh, president of Colombia was very outspoken about it, and now and the current one is, is very pro. Um, so I, I think we're seeing a lot of countries in Latin America that are embracing this and, and partially it will be because of people like him who have provided them with a, a very trustworthy, understandable business plan and he has acted on it as he said he would act on it. And so that really helps all companies to enter that market and to, to have local partners and to, to build more scale so that we can actually produce enough of this for all of the new sectors that, that we need to tackle. So I, so I, I think that's, that's great that, that he's doing that. And, and I agree with you as well. Uh, leaving a, a job where you're the top dog, you know, for nine years and then starting up your own thing, it's, you know, going from who's who to who dat. <laughs> that might be the new tagline, who's who to who dat. <laughs> no, 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 because now we still, we, he already got his uh, popularity back again. But, you know, anytime anyone leaves a big bank or they leave some institution that has a name and then they go to something, to a startup or something that isn't as well known, they find that their calls aren't returned as often as they used to be. And, uh, you know, it's people are not as interested in meeting with them usually. So it takes a lot of guts and, and he definitely has it. Um, and uh, so I, I, I think overall I'm very impressed with what he's doing. I, I think on the, the fertilizer side, though, it's really important, and, and I don't feel like people are, are as cognizant of this as, as, as is the case, 
But we are really running out of topsoil everywhere in the world. And partially that's because of the chemical fertilizers that we're using, and we're using them in too larger quantities. So the, the runoff is bringing the topsoil with it to pollute the local bodies of water, or aquifers, or, or ponds, or whatever. And, and people say, well, you know, farmers are never going to use too much because why would they pay more? But it's not that high of a cost, actually, and they can get a higher yield if they use more. But this has led to the loss of, of topsoil and desertification. And this increasing desertification and the loss of topsoil, these are all snowball activities. So I think we, we really need to bring it back and have a little bit more of um, old school farming techniques combined with some new technologies to, um, uh, to really solve the problem. Which isn't to say that there isn't a place for ammonia as a fertilizer, but I actually don't think it's going to grow past its current state because as the population grows, different solutions will be growing as well. So I see it more as a flat line on fertilizer. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I remember sitting and speaking to a Japanese trading house about how they look at the ammonia market. And they said, look, you know, world has 210 million tons of ammonia demand at the moment annually. That's kind of where they already are. Um, and just decarbonizing that is already a massive opportunity. And then you take, you know, some of the assumptions around where they think ammonia demand for shipping might go. And you're now going from 210 million tons to a billion of new. So you've not just got a billion of new, you've now got 210 million. So you know, actually, for a lot of people, even if the existing uh, ammonia market, for example, didn't even flatline, say it dropped to 100, but all of that has to decarbonize. And then you've also got to do shipping. It's still a very big opportunity. And I do think that uh, that in and of itself is still a very good thing to do. I mean, you know, it will take a long time to convince people to switch alternative measures of farming. It won't work for everywhere. I think, you know, th I think that was actually very well handled by Olivier. I'm certainly not a food expert, but I think, you know, what we have to be very cognizant of is that the public in many countries around the world have made it clear they do not understand the trade-offs between life where I'm on the breadline today versus longer term. And that's because to some extent that is a luxury topic. You know, if you can't afford to buy food and you can't afford to buy shelter or water or you can barely afford power, then, you know, your worries about what that's going to do to the environment 10, 20 years down the line is just not material. And I think that's where this just transition theme, again, that is coming up again and again and again, was a big theme at um, Climate Week. It's been a big theme in the UK. It's a big part of the Labour Party strategy and discussion around net zero is really relevant and especially where public money is being used um, i think we're going to see this becoming even more live i mean to give you a uk example the british government's just signed off on a half a billion subsidy for tata steel to switch from coal to electric arc furnaces but in the process of switching to electric arc furnaces and not switching to hydrogen they're going to be job cuts take away the fact that we can't produce primary steel now from that site because electric arc is more about recycling so you've lost primary steel which we use for nuclear and defense and all these other things that you would want to have that capability you're also just getting rid of thousands of jobs and it was a you know very good labor attack line recently he said only the labor only the conservative government could spend half a billion propping up and subsidizing someone to cut jobs um, but it does come back to this idea of a just transition. So I, I think the whole story around ammonia is definitely still to play for. I think you're right. Other fertilizers will come in. But I certainly think in the here and now and the scale that they are working at, it is critical. And 
ironically, there's an element of going back to history here. Because if I think about the size he's talking about, you know, 120 megawatts and then the next stage, 300 megawatts, you know, turn of the you know 1940s to 1950s, that was actually how we made ammonia. You know, it was hydro-connected alkaline electrolyzers in the kind of 100 to 200 megawatt scale. That's, you know, the famous Norsk Hydro photo of the Nell electrolyzers that are sitting in all the racks from 1949. That's a 120 megawatt system. That's what they had in Nepal. That's what they had in Aswan Dam. They had, you know, this is how we did ammonia. So there is this weird return to history, which Atomi in some ways is very modern, but it's also actually kind of doing something we did 70 years ago. And I also find that quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. And and I think um, other markets like Southeast Asia, there's a lot of small hydro opportunities. Um, they don't have a, so much uh, renewable resource, pretty squally skies for the solar, and then, um, you know, not so much wind. But they do have uh, small hydro all over Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, and a number of Southeast Asia countries. And then there's also the opportunity to build parts of the supply chain. So um, I think it's, uh, it's great to basically find something, some way for every country, every Global South country in particular, to play a part in the hydrogen economy because this is what, this is the, what the growth will be for the next you know, 30 years. Um, so it's great to have no man left behind. And it's just accepted now, which, which is fantastic to hear because I feel like 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of people would have... I mean, people were having the argument of, should we let these developing countries grow um, by using dirty fuels? Um, or, you know, are we going to stop them from using dirty fuels? And, and the argument was, why are we not going to let them grow when we grew? Um, and now I think we've just abandoned that altogether. And we're going to grow, but we're going to grow green. And we're not going to give up either of them. And and I think that's it's it's always good to hear that um, that people are thinking that way. And and it definitely was true of Climate Week as well. So overall, uh, it's I think really um, inspiring to to see people um, just getting it done. And then uh, you know people can applaud later. But as he said, is he you know he just put it he decided to go in and get it done and really not talk so much about it until he did really made some progress. So uh, I was very impressed with him, even though I already was very impressed with him. <laughs> Indeed. Well, look on that note. Why don't we let our listeners um, get away, and then we've got a couple more exciting episodes lined up in the next few weeks, and um, hopefully we can deliver some exciting insights before the end of the year and what will be a very topical COP. Yes, definitely. That was Everything About Hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. Hold up. 